Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to this Unheard Live event. Um, my name is Freddie Sayers. We are in a beautiful Victorian pub just outside the secure zone here in Birmingham. And it's been a funny old conference so far. Um, sometimes these things are almost a little bit sort of boring and technical and lots of people discussing sort of abstract policy issues. Well, this has a kind of wild millenarian apocalyptic atmosphere. Everybody seems to be drunk all the time um, and is sort of com com <laughs> competitively stating just how absolutely screwed uh, they are as a party. So it's a very strange atmosphere. And at the center, of the chaos uh, this year um, is uh, spreading a Dionysian fury around him is uh, none other than Michael Gove, who we have with us here today. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Freddie. Very nice to see you. And lovely to be here. So our, our, our challenge is a, a broad and ambitious one mm. today in that we're trying to understand how on earth this happened from a larger and more philosophical point of view. But before that, I've got to ask you about the last few days. Mm. Um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, accused you today of mounting a coup against the government. This is the former Attorney General, KC, so she must know her law. Are you? Um, no. I mean, well, the, the, the first thing to say is you're, you're, you're right to stress um, Suella's uh, legal expertise. She was one of the uh, youngest people ever to be appointed Treasury Counsel, one of the most formidably talented lawyers. Um, <clears throat> in the country and certainly in Parliament. Um, and uh, she was talking in the context of the debate that was going on earlier this week about the 45 pence tax rate. And uh, I was one of a number of people who felt that um, of all the measures in the, in the uh, plan for growth that was outlined uh, uh, nearly a fortnight ago, uh, this was one which was a mistake. Um, and I think there's now been a recognition of that um, uh, it, with the decision that by Liz and Quasi uh, uh, not to go ahead with it. Uh, but it, obviously, I've been in government and I can understand when uh, uh, you have to uh, amend or change a particular policy. It's never easy. Um, and I myself have been responsible for acknowledging when I was a minister uh, that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. Uh, but I think as a general rule, it is better when you realize that you've overreached or uh, that uh, a policy is not going down in quite the way that you'd anticipated it's better to cauterise things quickly. And what's your, about your role in, in all mm. of this? I mean, you're, you're, you're not being shy um, critiquing 
city government, that's for sure. Um, are you kind of setting yourself up as an alternative leader in some way, the, the leader of the non-Trussian faction of the Conservatives? Do you feel there's a movement behind you? How do you see your own role in this rapidly evolving story? No, I think uh, it, it, on this specific question of 45p and you know, the, the, the way in which the, the plan for growth was presented, um, <coughs> I was concerned that it was th that change was bad for the country and also bad for the government. And now that I'm a backbencher, if I think that there is something which is uh, uh, capable of being corrected and an error, uh, then uh, I will uh, uh, say so. Uh, but there is a lot that was announced uh, in, that, uh, in that mini budget, which I think was good or right or worthwhile, or certainly on the basis of everything I know about what's proposed, absolutely in the right direction. So no, uh, again, people sometimes look and entirely understandably for hidden patterns in political events. Um, yeah, and I can't remember whether it was um, Metternich or someone else who said of the death of Talleyrand, what did he mean by that? Uh, well, um, you know, uh, I'm no Talleyrand, let alone no Metternich. Um, and it, it, it's simply the case that I thought that that was a mistake and a big one. They, they look for hidden patterns. They also look for coherent philosophy yes. in governing parties. Yes. I think that's a fair thing to look for. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it, it seems to us, to the onlookers, a little bit more than a, a minor policy dispute about mm. one aspect. Uh, you mentioned on the TV that you, you think they are unconservative values, or these are not conservative values. So <coughs> I, I guess what I would like mm. to, you to, to clarify for us is zooming out from the particular point of the 45p tax, what is your sort of philosophical argument with the government? What, where, what do you think they're getting wrong in a bigger picture? Well, <coughs> I don't yet have, I mean, I've obviously had an argument and a disagreement with the government on this issue. Um, I don't yet have uh, uh, a disagreement um, or an argument with the government overall, quite the opposite. Uh, there are lots of things that the government uh, is continuing to do or contemplating doing with, um, with added energy, um, which I think are, are right and worthwhile. Uh, if we take a step back, it's less about the government and more about uh, what conservatism is or should be. And, uh, you know, again, the, 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 there, there are many different canonical expressions of what conservatism is. And, of course, conservatism changes depending on the nature of threats to this particular society in which uh, political institutions exist and so on. Um, but uh, uh, Michael Oakeshott's classic description, uh, to prefer present laughter to utopian bliss, um, I think is right, and I think that there is an element in conservatism which is about being cautious, not reckless, um, about being prudential. Um, uh, at times, anyone in government has to display dash, daring, and audacity. Uh, but when we think about fiscal conservatism, which is only one part of conservatism overall, then it's a recognition that uh, uh, you, uh, you cannot spend what you have not earned. Um, and so there will be times, of course, when governments will borrow. They will borrow in crises. They will borrow to invest. But my worry uh, is borrowing to cut taxes is not in, to my mind, in the best conservative traditions. So it's a mood. You feel like that you would like to see more caution well, and less. That, that is only one part of it. So but part of being a conservative, as I say, is to, is, 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 is to prefer uh, uh, the tried to the untried, to put your faith in. Uh, uh, the wisdom of preceding generations, again, to quote Evan, but not to, stock, not to trade upon your own stock of 
uh, uh, private intellectual capital, but to, to look at um, the wisdom contained in past experience and in institutions. So of course there are things that need to change. Of course there are things that need to uh, reform. That is part of the practical work of government. But a conservative philosophy or a conservative disposition uh, is respectful of human nature, uh, wary about dramatic change to institutions, uh, and is conscious also in particular that, uh, and th this I think is the core conservative insight. If you are a socialist or a social democrat, you think that uh, the state is the most important unit in political life. If you're a liberal or a libertarian, you think it is the individual. If you're a conservative, you recognize that it is community. And that can be um, uh, uh, local or uh, regional or national, but it is through relationships that we realize our fullest selves. And conservatives can uh, sometimes borrow from and benefit from an infusion of uh, radical energy from a liberal tradition, and indeed the conservatives have at different points absorbed liberals into their own ranks. And there are moments, 1979 was one, when liberal economic thinking was absolutely required given the way in which the balance of the economy and our state had tilted. Um, but it's about borrowing and learning from and having those voices uh, as part of the conversation rather than allowing them to dominate. In the same way, there have been moments when conservative governments have absorbed uh, uh, social democratic uh, lessons or initiatives. The most salient would be the National Health Service. Um, uh, and I now think that, you know, th that support for the NHS is a small c conservative position, but that's because at certain times we recognize that there is uh, 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 a fundamental level of insurance that you want to provide to people within your national community, and sometimes the state is the best means of providing that. But if the kind of core word there is community, yes. as you just said, and that is definitional for conservatives, do you think the current administration, from trust through to the chancellor and everyone else, are conservatives by that definition? Do you, do you see <coughs> community being put front and centre, I would guess not. From well, I, I think two things. I think the, the thing is, yes, they are emphatically conservatives. Um, and, and the whole point about conservatism is that it is a family, that there are uh, 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 different parts of, um, uh, uh, you know, different political and economic traditions that form part of the, you know, the, 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 the conservative movement or temperament. Um, in the um, uh, immediately post-war years in America, one of the uh, uh, descriptions of what was going on in uh, politics on the right was fusionism. There was an attempt to bring together those people who had been um, on the right um, in the 1930s, people who had been skeptical of the New Deal and FDR, who were you know, broadly slightly more isolationist, and those people who had been pro-New Deal, but also were increasingly unhappy with what they perceived as, as the left's failure on, um, uh, in, in, in robustness towards communism, but also the left's over-ambitious program of uh, uh, remaking society in the US. And so those people moved over. That fusion meant that the, uh, uh, the right in America, which looked uh, out of date, irrelevant, and reactionary uh, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, uh, Second World War because of the positions it took in the 30s, became a revived and powerful political movement. So. That, that, that piece of history is a way of illustrating that in other English-speaking countries, indeed in all countries, conservative parties or parties of the right draw on different traditions and change over time in response to specific circumstances. Um, uh, but I, I think the other thing is, 
there's a natural, understandable, I'm a journalist myself, journalistic rush to define the new, new thing and to say it's this rather than that. And again, you know, the, the, um, uh, the historian F.S. Oliver, also an, um, a conservative, wrote a book called The Endless Adventure, The Endless Adventure of Governing. It's about what happens in the early 18th century. And again, it's an analysis of the fact that when you come into office, then if you are a conservative, your response will change and change over time. Um, and the, the program um, that uh, people thought that you were necessarily going to implement right at the beginning alters because of um, events. So again, um, I think it is uh, uh, definitively too soon to pass a definitive judgment on the new government and say, I've got it fixed in my mind, it's definitely there. Let's zoom out a little bit and look at the last few years because it was less than three years ago yeah. that you were a central part of what seemed to be an incredibly new and interesting form of conservatism. Mm. That big majority won yes. by Boris Johnson in 2019 convinced a lot of people mm. that something new was happening. Yes. Uh, and the kind of phrase that has become quite common, which is sort of tilting slightly left on the economy, slightly right on culture, there was this idea that there was a, a realignment happening. New voters had mm. come in and no longer were conservatives going to be these kind of free market ultras. They were going to care more to protect yeah. people. They were going to look after people further down the um, income scale. And generally, they were going to leave people less uh, vulnerable to the ravages of the free market. Yes. And now, suddenly, that whole project, which you were a, a central part of, seems lost. Well, I think you're right in your analysis of, uh, in broad terms, um, of uh, what happened post-2016 and the coalition that uh, was already reforming when Theresa was prime minister in the 2017 election and took its, its full shape in 2019 when Boris won that election. And... You know, the, the advice that I would give to other Conservatives um, uh, fighting political battles and facing electoral battles is to remember the basis on which we won that 2019 majority. And the Conservative Party, as it has throughout history, uh, 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 changed. Um, and we were once again representing a significantly larger section of society that was on average or below average incomes. I think that is a good thing for a governing party to have as broad a base of electoral support as possible, not just so that it can weather the storms of office, but so that it is governing for the whole nation. And again, it's a cliche, the Conservative Party is a national party or it is nothing. I think that uh, the phrase national conservatism has a particular flavour in the United States, which covers certain policies which are not appropriate here. But what it speaks to is that recognition that um, as well as uh, strengthening the relationships that we have in the communities in which we live, the national community matters to conservatives, that the welfare of everyone within it matters, and that in a contest between uh, fealty to an ideological principle or the reality of the impact of your policies on uh, people um, on the ground, the latter must always trump the former. And particularly, I think you're right in saying that um, uh, other people have articulated this better than me, like Nick Timothy. Um, uh, we are absolutely in favour of free markets and free trade. However, it is also vitally important to recognise that if we're going to maintain support for free markets, then we need to be suspicious of crony capitalism, suspicious of concentrations of power in, uh, uh, in the wrong hands in the market. Um, um, and that sometimes needs a strong 
um, uh, 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 competition policy on, on, on the one hand, but it also needs a policy to enable people to compete equally or as equally as possible within the market. And that means that you need to have policies on education, health, and on what became known as leveling up that are there to support. So the, it, it is a more activist state in a sense in that the, you, you are defending here, it appears to me, the, the, the conscience, the principle of that 2019 victory. Yes. From what you see as a drift away from it in the government. Well, I think you, I, I, again, um, I, don't, I think it's too soon to say uh, that there's a drift away from it because um, I think that uh, everyone in government recognises that at the next election we need to show that we have uh, fulfilled the promises um, and been true to the manifesto uh, that um, uh, Boris authored and on which we won. Um, and you know, I, I think that um, the, the broad outlines of that manifesto are even more relevant now than they were at the time. Uh, that the argument about levelling up, about addressing geographical inequality, um, about making sure that people can uh, earn and belong and feel it, that um, uh, Conservatives understand their lives, that is just as important as it ever was. Um, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that people in government um, uh, absolutely recognise that. Now, there, is a, there are contingent factors at the moment. Um, because of the nature of the global economic crisis, then it is the case that we do need to uh, look at economic policy and consider how are we maximising uh, growth. That is absolutely the right thing to do, the right initial question to ask. Uh, and then that opens um, another realm of debate about what the best policies are in order to do that. And I would argue that uh, in the levelling up white paper, we outlined many of the policies required in order to ensure that you have sustainable growth. Um, and I think that uh, some of the uh, uh, initiatives that the government have now been talking about, the uh, enterprise zones that they've been talking about, the investment zones, uh, uh, can uh, deepen some of that work. But again, you need to keep that conversation going. Do you think it's fair to see some of these kind of philosophical disagreements within your party as originating in the Brexit movement? Mm. Uh, it's sometimes said that there were two Brexits. Mm. There was the kind of uh, free market ultra Brexit, which mm. saw Brexiting as a way to liberate from the strictures of the European Union, yes. become more, more deregulated, more mm. open. And then there was a, a, a different kind of Brexit, which was, yes, more about protecting uh, people from, from globalisation, more mm. care to cultural questions and less about pure economics and growth. You're sort of seen as being in that latter group. Yes. Uh, is that fair? Do you, are you happy yes. for me to characterize you like uh, that? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. In which case, these, the, the seeds of this disaster were sort of sown from the beginning in the Brexit movement because it was always two things mm. and they weren't reconcilable. Well, uh, I, I, I absolutely uh, take your point, but I think that um, if you look back to the argument that vote leave mounted, that was the, the, the case that was being made, presented by me, by Boris, by Gisela Stewart, by Andrea, in television studios, on platforms. Um, that case was explicitly about sovereignty. Taking back control was the single most important thing. How was that, that manifest? 
it was manifest in a number of different ways, in uh, making sure that we invested properly in the NHS, in making sure that we had a migration policy where we were in control and we attracted the brightest and the best, I know it's a cliche, uh, into uh, 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 making our science base and our uh, 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 culture of technological innovation as strong as possible. Um, and it was also about looking prudently and rigorously at the corpus of EU regulation and seeing what it is that we should um, maintain, what it is that we should enhance, and what it is that we should adapt. Um, yes, a critical part of what we were talking about was also being in charge of our own trade policy as well, but that was um, making sure that trade policy worked for the UK economy. It wasn't explicitly a commitment to uh, a purist view of uh, free trade of the kind that argues that we should uh, take down all barriers. Um, and again, that was the basis on which the vote was won. Now, when you have something, a change as big as Brexit, you will have people who will be supporting it for different reasons. And then you will have people who will also see that in the changed political circumstances that Brexit uh, brought about, uh, they can make a case for their own position. So again, the whole point about having greater democratic control is that you can then have ideas contesting within the UK domestic political space and uh, uh, arguments winning out. And, and you know, so there were some people um, who voted for Brexit, Lexiteers, um, because uh, they wanted a much more interventionist economic policy. They wanted, you know, uh, uh, people supporting from abroad, like Wolfgang Street, some of the people who are writing here on the left wanted not quite to go back to Ben's alternative economic strategy, but they wanted to be able to have greater democratic control over capital. So you had wings of uh, uh, you know, support, but all of it ultimately was about uh, uh, democracy. The, the description you've just given, is a, it seems like a very a polite way of describing how one version of Brexit that you were involved in mm has sort of lost out to uh, what appears to be a, a different version. And I suppose my basic question would mm. be, how did that happen? Because you were there not very long ago at the, mm. at the commanding heights of the government. Your department reached all the other departments. Mm. Um, you know, you were elected on this big majority. You'd put your support behind Boris Johnson. There was the feeling that you could achieve anything you wanted as a group. <coughs> how, what is your diagnosis for how it all went so wrong? Well, uh, 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 to use a fashionable phrase of the week, um, I would contest the premise of that question. <laughs> um, <coughs> um, so uh, again, uh, as you can probably tell from what I've said, I like history. History is helpful, I think, in illuminating some of our current challenges, though obviously it doesn't answer every question. Um, I think there is a parallel with um, what happened after America secured its independence in the uh, 1780s. Um, and the parallel is this. So at the time, I mean, uh, funnily enough, let me preface it. I remember during the referendum campaign, um, I spent a, or just as it was hotting up, I spent a week in New York with my wife and family. I saw Hamilton. Uh, and uh, it was my wife, now ex-wife, sadly, um, who turned to me in the interval and said, do you know what this is about? I said, it's brilliant, it's about America. And she said, this is about Brexit. Um, and I said, oh, come off it. She said, no, it is about, you know, King George III, you know. The European uh, Union. Is the European <laughs> Union. You'll be back. Um, 
uh, and uh, uh, Washington and Hamilton, uh, the, uh, the revolutionaries, they are uh, fighting for national independence and democratic control. Um, and I thought so was putting it a bit much, but still, I could see the parallels. Um, uh, and then, uh, to, you know, to move backwards into history, in the immediate aftermath of the American uh, uh, Revolution, you had a contest between two different visions of what America should be, the Hamiltonian and the Jeffersonian. And uh, they were broadly positions that we would now recognize as being on the right. Uh, and the Hamiltonian one is the Boris vision. Uh, it is about uh, uh, strong national uh, uh, institutions. It is about, essentially, an industrial policy. It is about having uh, uh, good relations with the entity from which you have just left, but not allowing the entity which you have just left to determine your place in the world. Now, the Jeffersonian view was different, and it, was, it reflected partly Jefferson's southern agrarian, as it happens, slaveholding uh, uh, positions. But it was also essentially a more libertarian point of view, as it were. Um, and that conversation went on. Who represents the Jeffersonian view? Uh, I think probably uh, Mark Littlewood of the IEEE, <laughs> to take a world historical figure. Um, and, and I think that you know, that conversation is still going on in, in British politics uh, at the moment. And you know, in the end, uh, it was Jefferson who got to become president um, and uh, uh, Hamilton who got shot. Um, but, but I think if you look back at American history, then the Hamiltonians won the argument. And then if you look at the significant um, uh, political figures on uh, uh, you know, in American history, then Abraham Lincoln was in the Hamiltonian tradition, Teddy Roosevelt was in the Hamiltonian tradition. Um, and so I think that, that uh, so, it, so it's too soon to say. So what you're doing here at, at conference mm. is you are, you're, you're representing Hamilton, basically. You are, you're the Alexander Hamilton of... Boris is, Boris is, Boris is Alexander Hamilton, and, you and are, I am a Hamiltonian. Uh, you are a Hamiltonian. Yes. Right. Um, I think where quite a lot of us get confused is that when you, when you drill down into those two visions, I understand what mm -hmm. you mean, um, you sort of get lost quite quickly. Mm. And, and for me, it's always been surprising how few uh, Hamiltonians mm. there are in the parliamentary party, mm. at least. Um, you know, we, we did a whole series of interviews with newly elected Red Wall MPs mm. in 2019, and as far as I can make out, they were all Thatcherites, ar mm. arch Thatcherites, um, absolutely devoted to small state mm. power of the markets. Um, I wonder whether you think that's true. That I mean, after all, you supported Kami Bednock mm. in the recent leadership contest, who I know you agree on many cultural issues, but mm. economically, she's basically with Liz Truss. She is a, mm. a, a strong libertarian economically. Mm. Is, there's a shortage of your Hamiltonians in your own party, aren't there? Isn't there? Well, again, uh, uh, I, I don't know uh, in depth the views of all of my colleagues. So point one, um, I think that there are uh, people who were uh, elected in 2019. I, mean, I, I absolutely take Thatcher as a shorthand. I think Mrs. Thatcher was a much more yeah. complex figure than that, but I absolutely understand what you mean by it. Um, and I think that there are, there are people who would place themselves proudly in that uh, tradition. But I also think, and, I, and I don't, I'm very conscious that if I praise anyone in the current Parliamentary Conservative Party, I will ruin their career. <laughs> so I have to be careful. But I think, 
if you listen to people like Danny Kruger or Miriam Cates or Jane uh, uh, Stevenson, um, uh, you, will, you will get a much more subtle and nuanced picture of what conservatism means to them and overall than, than, than might be the case from the inevitably uh, uh, edited snapshot that you've just given. Uh, so, so I, you know, I, so they the, are there. The, oh, definitely. But this, the second thing that, that I would say is um, in this debate, the, the British people are Boris Johnsonian or uh, uh, Hamiltonian. The British people are uh, pro-democracy, uh, uh, of the majority uh, voted for Brexit, uh, uh, and the people who uh, came to the Conservative Party uh, or left the traditional political allegiances to vote for Brexit were overwhelmingly people who wanted strong and robust national institutions, who wanted control of our borders, not because they had a reductionist vision, but because they believed that that was the most important way of safeguarding uh, good community relations at home and maximizing economic advantage uh, for the UK. And they were also people who, um, essentially had a, a basically small c conservative economic vision you know they, they they were people who to go back to margaret thatcher would have believed in basic household economics you can't spend as i said earlier what you haven't earned you need to balance the, uh, the books overall uh let's not have uh uh um what's the word uh, uh flights of ideological fancy and and if we are going to borrow let's make sure that that borrowing is for investment in infrastructure and let's also make sure that in this country we uh, make, manufacture, and develop and sell more of what the world wants. So the voters weren't represented by their representatives ultimately then. If you're saying that most of the voters agreed with your vision. Boris's vision. Your and Boris's <laughs> vision. But most of the parliamentary party and possibly the membership who elected the leader took a different view. And, and this tragedy is that tension playing well, out. Well, it's an interesting question. And, I, and again, I think... Um, uh, uh, it is too soon to say. So I think uh, I, I don't know all the questions that you asked, but I, you know, I do know from um, uh, the conversations that I have had with MPs in the 2019 intake and and, and beyond that um, you know people have uh, a a deeper and a more nuanced uh, set of politics than can sometimes be elicited from even the most sophisticated questionnaire. Um, so again, I won't name names, but you know, there are MPs who were elected um, in the Northeast who are uh, people who either have a public se sector background or who uh, uh, have a, a career or tradition in local government who, yeah, they, they, they place themselves on the right, clearly, economically. They would say they were pro-market. I would say I was pro-market. Um, uh, so I think that MPs overall, yeah, very much uh, uh, closer to the model that I've outlined. Um, I think it's the case that with, with party memberships, um, uh, that um, by definition, even though the Conservative Party overall has changed and it's, it, 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 the, the composition of the Electoral Coalition has changed, party memberships, and, and it's a sad thing because parties overall have grown, have grown smaller, uh, are often slightly more intense in some of their views than the broad level of support. So having said that, um, in my own association in Surrey Heath, and I'm not holding it up as a, you know, a model, I'm not saying that, well, it is a model association of wonderful, wonderful people, but I'm not saying that this is a model for everywhere else. Um, uh, if you talk to people there in, who are members of, of my constituency association, uh, they have... Uh, 
views very similar to those that I've outlined. Um, uh, 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 the majority of people who certainly voted for Brexit and the majority of people in this country have. So, no, I absolutely take your point. Um, uh, but I think, I, I, uh, again, I would try to sort of aim off slightly and nuance it rather than necessarily uh, underline it three times and put a tick next to it. Let's bring in a couple of other factors yeah. in trying to understand how we got here. I mean, it is going to probably rate as one of the most spectacular kind of unravelings in political history. And over such a brief period, I think, although I don't want to get hung up on it, and no, I know sure. you and I have discussed it before, lockdown oh, yeah, yeah. and the COVID period mm. surely must mark the point at which the project of yourself and Boris Johnson from 2019 began to unravel and fast. And, and I, would, mm. I would suggest, and this is what no, I'm sure, really sure, sure, sure. keen to hear what you think about this, is that for someone like you who wanted to make your colleagues okay with the idea mm. of a more interventionist state mm. and have that as part of the new Toryism, mm. that overreach, mm. which in increasingly appears more and more um, disastrous as we look at it, put them off. Yeah. And it was too much, and it felt totalitarian and over the top to people. So suddenly the centre moved, and people felt the corrective now needed is less state. So, and you were at the centre of driving for those lockdowns, yeah. and maybe you killed your own project with that initiative. Uh, possibly. Uh, it's a view. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I, again, I'd say two things. One is about public opinion, and then one is about the detail of the policy. The thing about public opinion is that, uh, again, the overwhelming majority of British people were supportive of strong measures in order to protect their health and, those of, and, and the NHS. Um, uh, and at the time, there was an understandable critique mounted better um, uh, by Unheard than by anyone else, uh, but echoed by some other journals, um, that we were uh, uh, so energetically embracing a, a policy of coercion that we were uh, 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 moving towards, in the words of another journalist, a sort of, you know, uh, biosecurity state. That was never the case. This was, these were clearly a set of contingency measures dropped as, as, as soon as we possibly could and not embraced with any degree of enthusiasm, but because of, of, of the nature of the threat that we faced. Now, there will be an ongoing debate about whether or not at any given stage the measures enacted were too much. I think there's a very good argument that is put by, uh, by you, Freddie, by other unheard writers and by Fraser Nelson, that we needn't have used legislation in order to facilitate the sorts of uh, steps that, for example, in Sweden, people voluntarily accepted. Um, so, uh, I, and, 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 and- Is that now your view? Well, I, I think it is an open, I still think that for a variety of reasons, it was not practical to proceed without having uh, 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 legislation underpinning it. But I think that is a completely, well, I mean, every debate is valid. I think that is a completely open area of contention. Absolutely. However, many of the things that people say are a result of lockdown were as a result of the virus. So when some of my uh, 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 friends and colleagues in the media say, you know, it was lockdown that caused the economic slowdown. Well, it was the virus that caused the economic slowdown. Even if the government had said that we're not going to do anything, it's up to you guys, people would have stayed at home, people would have self-isolated, people would not have gone in, in, into work. And indeed, had the virus let rip, 
and had our NHS been overwhelmed, or even if pressure on the NHS had been significantly greater than it was, then the economic consequences in every case would have been worse, I believe. So am I being overly imaginative and hopeful in discerning in that answer, if not quite regret, at least some hesitation as to whether that really was the right thing to do when you were pushing for it so hard? Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I still think it was the right thing to do, but the whole point is you've got to, um, uh, in politics and everywhere, you know, there, there has to be a balance between believing this is the right thing to do, looking at the evidence, being convinced that you need to take uh, action, and then afterwards reviewing and thinking, okay, was that, was that right? Um, and uh, again, I think one of the things is, in politics, um, when you have a crisis like that, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you're dealing particularly with a virus, the, 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 the ravages of which and the nature of which you're still uh, attempting to, to grapple with and determine the, you know, the science is evolving, uh, it always evolves um, as you're dealing with it. You are having to make decisions, any minister is having to make decisions with imperfect information at speed. So mistakes will always be made. Um, and, you know, the, the, and I think that there are all sorts of lessons to learn from that episode. There are some high-level lessons about the over-reliance that the uh, UK and other Western democracies had on supplies, not just of PPE, but other materials from authoritarian nations. But to move to the, to the heart of it, um, uh, I am more than happy um, and I think we all should be to debate that. The one thing, and you're not guilty of it, but others are, um, are, are people who say, you were wrong, you were wrong. Repent, repent, repent. As though uh, I, I've been part of some Albigensian heresy. And now is the moment for me either to, you know, convert back to orthodoxy or to be, um, uh, you know. Hmm. So if, so final question on this, and I promise I'll move uh -huh. on. So if someone posited to you 
a hypothetical alternate history. Yes. That actually, had Boris Johnson gone Sweden, yes. which was his original instinct, and had you supported him in that, mm. you would not now be a backbencher, you would still be in government, Boris Johnson would still be prime minister, and the government would be riding high because it would be gradually uh, receiving the credits over time that countries like Sweden now are. Do you think that is a plausible alternative? I don't think so, no, but, but, um, uh, I can, uh, 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 as counterfactuals and as alternate histories go, it is right that you should um, present it and challenge because it's absolutely right for me and others uh, to think, should we have changed it at, a, at any point? But I think that there are, you know, again, if you're a conservative, you recognize that there are national cultures. What uh, uh, might work in Sweden, in the, given the nature of Swedish society, might not work in, uh, uh, in the UK, given the nature of our society. Also, our country was more vulnerable to COVID, we now know, because of, of various factors, including everything from obesity to poor housing and so on. Um, and the final thing that I would say is, um, in Sweden, you've had a quite significant political change <laughs> in the last couple of months. Um, and so some of the politicians who were taking their course have been, you know, taken a hit in the poll. So very good challenge. Um, uh, uh, given that it was, the, the, these were the most momentous set of events that have occurred since 2019 domestically, then it's absolutely right that uh, people who were responsible should uh, have uh, the ability and the humility to recognize that that challenge is right. Taking us back to the present moment. Yeah. Do you now feel, looking around at this conference, mm. which is, it's, it does feel extremely chaotic. Uh, people are sounding off in all sorts of directions. There appears, appears to be very little discipline. Does it feel to you there is enough of a coherent philosophy now in your party still to hold it together with all these competing elements and deliver a victory at the next election? Yes, I do. And, and I think um, uh, at the risk of sounding like a, uh, a stuck record and at the risk of saying, let's go back to the Old Testament, I think it's the 2019 manifesto, the insights and the arguments behind it um, that are at the heart of it, uh, the people who were the authors of it, people like Rachel Wolf, I think, are uh, uh, right about most things, more right than I am about things. Um, that is the, uh, the basis on which, you know, that's the bedrock on which we should uh, uh, build. I also think that it is right to, um, you know, bearing in mind COVID, uh, what's happened um, uh, with Putin and Ukraine, and the particular difficult economic circumstances that the entire Western world now face and will face, it is right for any prime minister to think, how can I lean in more on certain aspects of economic change in order to accelerate what I might have thought was necessary beforehand? So I think all of that is right. And again, the other thing is, um, you know, I uh, live in uh, the uh, goldfish bowl. I inhabit the whirlpool that is politics, and I was a journalist. Uh, there is a tendency sometimes to uh, overinterpret small movements at the time. I think for most people... 25 points in the polls is not a small movement. No, but I think the Conservatives have, well, uh, Kwasi has written a book, Kwasi Kwarteng has written a book about uh, 1981 and the difficulties that the Thatcher government faced then. At that point, I think it was the SDP who were at 50 points in the polls, then Labour, then the Conservatives who were in the low 20s. So 
in the period from the uh, epoch that Quasi was writing about to the 1982 general election that resulted in a conservative landslide is about the same time period as between now and when the next election will be fought. So that's all the way of saying that uh, you can't uh, predict with confidence exactly where things are going to be. A year ago, Boris was occupying a dominant position in British politics. So, uh, you know, uh, events come at you fast. Uh, 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 all I would say is um, I've seen a, a commentary at consensus form around a particular proposition uh, and then uh, uh, the, the commentators having to reassess their point of view. Do you feel, with your eye for history, that political parties, after a certain period in power, sometimes just run out of energy, run out of coherence, and run out of ideas? And it often happens around about the 12-year mark or thereabouts. <laughs> um, do you think there is any sense in which the Conservatives would benefit from a period in opposition no. to regroup? No. <laughs> no. Because the country um. seems to be... Headed no. in that direction. No. Um, uh, from um, uh, uh, 1715 and uh, George I's succession to the throne until uh, well into the reign of George III, you had a solid period of Whig rule. Um, from uh, 1832, with only very brief blips, essentially until, um, let me get this right, 1874, you had a solid period of Whig, liberal, and P-like rule. So, you know, 1832 to 1874, that is 42 years. Uh, 1715 to 1760, at the very earliest, 35 years. That's broadly the span that I think of uh, conservative rule that we need. Um, and in that long span, a future for Michael Gove politically. There was some talk that uh, you have, were resigning or you were, you were stepping back. You certainly don't seem to be stepping back this week. Um, if called to serve, would you answer that call? By unheard, yes, very much so. Um, um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think you, you, I spent um, 11 out of the 12, last 12 years as a cabinet minister, you know, enormous privilege. Um, uh, but the, 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 the torch is passing on to another generation now. Let's get some questions from the audience. Um, I think if we bring the lights up a little bit, then I can um, see people. There is a gentleman at the back with a tie on. Um, I'll actually take two questions at a time, if I could. So we'll get one from you um, and one from the lady on the front row here. And then we'll, we'll come back for another round. Go ahead, sir. If you, there's, there's no uh, portable mic, so please broadcast. OK, I'll, I'll do my best. Thank you. Um, so very interesting discussion. I think the lockdown discussion is really interesting when it comes to back to conservative philosophy for me. Because I'm sure a lot of people in the room are aware of news stories where there were people who were punished for things that weren't actually illegal mm. and weren't technically forbidden. Mm. There were certain people who were quite zealous, yep. lockdown zealots. When you talked about Michael Oakeshott mm. and his, you know, present mm. laughter to utopian bliss, one of the other things Oakeshott talked a lot about was the fallibility of human beings. Yep. And in conservative philosophy, the uh, both the lack of perfection and lack of protectability of human beings. Need a question. In that regard, conservative <laughs> philosophy, is there not a case to make that small state conservatism is the best approach given human beings' fallibility? And the lady over here. Um, by your definition of community at the forefront of conservatism, unconservatives, obviously, uh, 
Michael, I'm the founder of the Respect Party, and I'm a woman. What I deal with in my NHS work is the Hotel Conflict, is 130,000 kids in the city living in poverty. I've had 12 years, I've been a lot of coloured communities, but it has been a Conservative government, and we've had these words leveling up, and there was a hope with the Brexit coalition, regardless of you know, everything else in the news. But what was coming very strongly and in the manifesto was a leveling up agenda. And just this week I had this coffee conversation like nobody publishing the white paper on health disparities. But we now have a life expectancy like we were now. We live one mile from here in the city, ten years longer life where the wealthy area, and one mile going the other end, ten years less. And even the ten years less life that we live in, seventeen years of those will be in ill health. Where's the leveling up? This has happened okay. under Conservative government. How does that relate to your philosophy of conservatism, of human nature, human well-being, community bonds? Thank you for that, Michael. Thank you. I think it's a very fair challenge, and I think that um, uh, uh, the more power that government takes to itself, the more responsibility it takes on its shoulders, the more likely it is to get things wrong, the more likely it is to get things wrong very badly. So a certain degree of humility about the capacity of uh, state action and state intervention to achieve the goals um, attributed to it. But at the same time, as you can tell or infer from everything I said beforehand, I'm certainly no fan of a night watch one state and, and all the rest of it. So it is about, and I know this is a very boring Anglican view, it's about balance. Um, and you are right, there is a strain in, um, in, in, the, in, in human nature which is curtain twitching, finger pointing, uh, you know, uh, the air raid warden in um, uh, Dad's army, um, and the uh, you know, the Puritan culture in Arthur Miller's The Crucible and so on, that we need to guard against. So again, I think, I think that the position that the government took on lockdown was within, um, obviously, uh, 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 the constraints of the time, the right thing to do, but did that lead to uh, some people uh, behaving in a way that was, at the very least, uncharitable and unchristian and vengeful? Uh, yes. And was it also the case that... Um, uh, some of the direct things that we had to do economically, like furlough, did that change expectations about what the state might always be able to do? Yes, as well. Um, uh, you know, it's always a balance. Um, so you've got to, you know, um, Kemi Badal, um, uh, quoted Thomas Sill, says, you know, there's never a perfect answer, there are always trade-offs. And where you, where you draw that line might be wrong, but understanding the contingencies of the time, I think, is important. And two, I think it is Salma, isn't it? To Salma's question, um, I think it's a very fair point. And, and again, um, I, uh, I, I'm obviously not a lefty, uh, but I do believe that uh, there is a problem when inequality in any society grows uh, uh, too far. Um, and I think that there, there, so you've got properly to be, uh, what's the word? humble about the capacity of state action in and of its own to address inequality. But I don't think, and I think this is a, a very conservative thing, not necessarily the view of libertarians, but I don't think that, that it is a healthy society when uh, you um, uh, uh, have the sorts of uh, divisions uh, that you describe um, unaddressed and perpetuating. Um, and again, um, uh, my friend Greg Clark, when he was working for David Cameron, drew the comparison of, of society as a 
a cannel train or a cavalry train uh, passing through, and you, you, you know, again, you want to make sure that those at the front, the natural, at any given point, leaders or the, you know, the, uh, the leading spirits of society, they have to ensure that they don't lose touch with those who are furthest from them economically. And again, going back to what we were talking about in, 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 in liberal terms, um, the Promethean spirit, the idea that there are people in society at any given time who are going to be creators and mold breakers and entrepreneurs and disruptors. It is great that you have a society where you have the Elon Musks and the Peter Thiels and, uh, and so on. But even as you don't want to constrain that, you want to make sure that in a society uh, we do not allow people to fall too far behind. And you're right. But just to follow up on that, do you think you've become more... The question was asked about why have we got... It is a huge question, and I'm not, I won't try to evade all of the factors. I think um, it is undeniably the case that because of, and, and, and these are factors, I'm not saying for a moment that they excuse everything that's happened on, um, our, on our watch, but because of COVID, economic slowdown associated with it, uh, war in Ukraine, energy prices, and so on, um, resources are inevitably constrained. But in looking back over the course of the last 12 years at what has worked and what hasn't, I could run through what I think has worked in terms of addressing inequality. I think it was the case that certainly for the first seven years of this government, we managed to reduce uh, education inequality um, and improve outcomes for uh, poorer children relative to wealthier children. And I think that some of the welfare changes that Ian Duncan Smith introduced as well helped. I think there are other things that we can analyze which were less helpful. Um, all I would say is I think it's important to, to debate these things in an open spirit. And, and, and in general, and I know that while you might be a small C conservative, you're not a member of the Conservative Party, not yet anyway, um, <laughs> that, um, that um, one of the ways I think in which conservatives can be persuaded to take account perhaps of some points of view that they may not initially appear warm towards is if those who are critiquing them are also respectful of the tradition from which they hail and the sincerity of their efforts to do good. Have you, you said you're not a lefty. Yes. You are arguing for the 45p rate to remain, for um, benefits to rise uh, alongside inflation, for an extension of um, vouchers for food and so on. All of these are nudging the government in the direction you're talking about. I'm just wondering, was it always like that with you? Or do you feel this greater concern and this, this sort of one nation atmosphere is a, is a new thing for Michael Gove? Are you, have, you, have you moved in that direction in the last few years, do you think? Because 10 years ago, I'm not sure that you would have had well, exactly the same view. Um, oh, well, to take it back to the time when I was both Shadow Education Secretary and Education Secretary, um, we explicitly said uh, that our aim was, as a party, to um, uh, raise the bar and narrow the gap, raise the bar in having higher standards overall. So the first part of it would have been a familiar conservative argument about uh, uh, rigor, discipline, uh, uh, excellence in education, and so on. The second part might not seem to be, but for me, the principal aim of education reform was to um, improve opportunity for the very poorest children in our society. At the time, and I think there was an element of almost student self-parody about it, I had a picture of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Barack Obama in my office. And when people came in and said, why on earth have you got these pictures? I would say, this is a civil rights crusade. We are here to help children 
who have been let down by an education system that has put adults first, not children first. So uh, I'd, yeah, I'd, so, so I'd argue, that, no, my position on individual things might have changed over time, um, but insofar as I am of any interest, uh, anyone who is interested can look back at the columns that I wrote in the Times, and I think that they would see that there's been, there's been broad consistency. So uh, on matters of personal lifestyle, I've generally been socially liberal. Um, on uh, what one might call uh, cultural or nation-state questions, uh, reliably conservative or high Tory, on everything from uh, Europe to the Union to um, uh, uh, allowing institutions to succeed. Um, and I think in terms of um, social policy, which is not individual lifestyle policy, but social policy overall, um, I've always argued that uh, the centre-right should never cede to uh, the left the idea that social justice is their territory. Okay, let's take some more questions. Thank you for that, Michael. Um, lady at the front here, um, gentleman round uh, the back, and I should take one from you there. I think that's Eric Kaufman over there will take one from you as well. Let's go in that order. Speak up, too, please. Thank you for talking about the lockdown. Um, we've all lived through it, and our freedoms were taken away, and it was a good thing when the laws were repealed. Mm. And we have had our freedom taken away. We have had a loss of free speech mm. over that period. And I attended the uh, discussion on the online safety bill. I run a technology company. Mm. And I'm very concerned that online safety has become a huge fourth industrial revolution with data centers mm. in the last 12 years, 14 years, which have transformed our lives so we could be locked down. And I'm concerned that this government is not giving enough attention to the loss of free speech that we would have if this online safety bill is passed. Okay, thank you. Sir? Michael, you mentioned the potential of the level of football and uh, the way it can be used to, uh, to grow the economy across the country. Obviously, a flagship legislation coming through your department. Yeah. What advice would you give to your successor in order to actually <coughs> drive devolution across the country? Okay, and finally, uh, Eric. Yeah, Michael, thanks very much for a great talk. Um, I want to pick you up on this comment about immigration. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the Hamiltonian Brexit mm. Mm. was not the finest about immigration. Uh, they only want sovereignty. Mm. I, I don't think, honestly, that squares with Serbia. Um, recent polls showed only about 7% of conservatives agree that immigration should either remain at its current level or increase. 71% want it reduced. So I, is there a squeamishness in the Conservative Party about taking this on? And I should also add other cultural issues that largely, again, the survey data would show motivated the Brexit vote and has been reinterpreted, I would argue, in this way as, as about sovereignty rather than actually addressing those cultural concerns of the voters. Um, Which order do you want to go? I'll, I'll go in the order of it. So firstly, yes, I do, I do take your point, and I do have some... Uh, uh, I am, as Freddie knows, um, a, a wholeheartedly in favour of free speech. Um, and I'm not a fundamentalist on anything, but the closest I come to it is on free speech. Um, and so uh, I am uh, pro-Jerry Sadowitz. I, uh, I find the concept of the state determining uh, what is legal but harmful, uh, difficult. Um, uh, and uh, again, I'm sure that these concerns are well understood by people in government. Um, but I also think that the, some of the threats to free speech come not necessarily 
in this occasion from the state itself, they come from institutions that are cowed by pressure. So uh, Kathleen Stock suffers as a result of the failure of courage of university administrators in Sussex. Uh, and again, you know, that is, uh, and th this was all predictable. Mark Lawson wrote a novel about precisely the situation years before it happened. Uh, and therefore, you know, I think that is, it, it, it has to be fought in many areas. And one of the things I would say is, of course, government can do terrible things. Of course, government can get things wrong. Once the, something has the force of statute, that, 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 you know, that, 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 that can be worrying. But for those of us who do care about free speech, it is not just about beating up on the government, so we must ensure that the government doesn't make mistakes, this government and any future governments. It's about a broader argument for uh, you know, the vital importance of uh, making sure that the dissident can be heard. Um, so will you vote for the online safety bill now that you're a backbencher? Um, well, I, I have to say that I, uh, well, I, I think parts of it are going to be changed, so I'm sure I will be able to vote for it. Um, on on um, levelling up overall, um, I think that uh, the, uh, uh, there is so much to say, um, but, but, but uh, Simon Clark, who is the Secretary of State who's in charge now, is someone who I know because I worked with him when he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury and we were on the committee dealing with this, is committed to more devolution, is committed to addressing regional inequality, uh, and uh, you know, I have confidence that uh, even though, and I used an analogy elsewhere, a terrible cooking analogy, even though he may add a little bit more gar garlic and a little bit more oregano than I might have done, that it will basically be the same delicious goulash that we were preparing. Um, and then uh, to Eric's point. Yes, I and mean, again, you know, one always has to use language carefully in, in, with some of these political questions. Um, and again, I joke that uh, I, I have to be careful as well because I um, am a migrant. I'm an economic migrant from... Aberdeen to London, um, and I'm an asylum seeker uh, fleeing uh, the uh, political regime that Nicola Sturgeon has imposed <laughs> north of the border. Um, but I think your point is right. I mean, I, uh, what I was seeking to say is my overall view is if you have democratic control over your own borders, then the whole debate about migration takes place in, in calmer terms. Uh, Dominic Cummings sorry for swearing in front of this audience, <laughs> said that one of the things that he wanted to do was to make sure that migration became a much lower temperature, much less salient issue in British politics. And it was the nature of free movement that meant that we, and, and the fact that there was literally no control you know, within the limits of the EU and the single market area, um, uh, you know, was problematic. Okay. We're now in a position where we do have uh, control. One of the things that, again, Vote Leave and Dominic were very clear about is... Um, uh, importing uh, people who are um, uh, essentially at the bottom end of the income spectrum uh, uh, depresses wages for people here and inhibits productivity broadly. Importing people who can contribute at the top end in areas like science and innovation and for example allowing uh, post-study uh, work and so on can help our economy and indeed, when people who have come and contributed here may want to return to other countries or support their families, that is a good thing. But ultimately, you are right. It is always a question of numbers. The other thing that I would say is that I suspect, that we haven't talked about this in detail, I suspect I'm uh, slightly more, in, well, one of the reasons why I'm in favor of, of control is that um, I think it is a good thing that we are honoring our commitment to Hong Kong BNOs. I think it's a good thing that we've been able to take people from Ukraine here, albeit on a temporary basis. I think 
tolerance and support for uh, humanitarian acts like that are greater if people know that we're controlling numbers overall. Um, and, and you're right that the numbers that um, uh, have come in in the last couple of years uh, have been higher than I think um, most people would want to see. Um, so it, it, it has to be an ongoing debate. But I'm also conscious that in the debate about migration, we have to be uh, uh, sensitive to how that debate is, is conducted in such a way as to, as to, as to you know, maintain the credentials that make Britain such an admirable place. On the cultural point, I'm sorry to go on at, um, at this length, I think you're right. I think one of the things is that um, in broad terms, you know, T.S. Eliot writes about how um, uh, uh, traditions change over time. Um, and what people absolutely accept is that Britain uh, uh, was different 50 years ago and will be different in 50 years' time as a result of many factors, including new people uh, coming here with new traditions that can add to um, our country. However, wrenching change, which means that institutions that people have um, reposed faith in and feel comfortable with, being altered uh, at a dramatic pace and in a way that people feel is unsettling, at a time when there is also economic turbulence, that is difficult. And again, you know, it w human nature means that we need to have a relationship with change that uh, allows it to occur in a way where um, we feel comfortable and in control. Um, and I think sometimes uh, when people look at the economic imperative of particular policies, they forget about that aspect of human nature. So does that mean then that you think numbers should not be going up of total numbers of immigrants? Is that where, is that where we're... Well, uh, the, the, yes. the, re the, re the reason why I answer the question in the way and at such length is that I'm very conscious, not that you are trying to do this, Fred, but I'm very conscious there may be someone in the audience who is a journalist from another outlet, and they'll be thinking, oh, Michael Gove's laid down a warning to the government on the online safety bill. No. Um, uh, I have absolute confidence that the government will handle that right and not seeking to commit even the smallest bit of news. Similarly, if I get, it's a very good question, but if I get drawn into it, I am conscious, I can't imagine there be anyone here, but there might be someone watching at home who might say, oh, Gove lays down a marker on this or sends a signal on that or da da da. Uh, and no, I mean, you're I think at liberty to send any signals you like. <laughs> I know, but uh, I'm uh, conscious that at this point in this wonderful city, uh, uh, the, the, there is a what's the word? Uh, and at this moment, for the reasons you mentioned earlier, the, the, there, there are some people who are willing to, you know, stir the pot, and I, I don't want to do that. Okay, any more than I already have. Do you? Uh... <laughs> OK, let's, I, we've got uh, time for one more round of questions, and then we will have to call it a day. Um, there's a gentleman at the back, and this guy's had his hand up every time, so I'll go for him as well. And a lady on the second row back there next to the camera. So if we go for those three in that order, they will be the last ones. Do speak up. Great. Uh, ben from Sheffield. Uh, you very kindly gifted a Bible to schools when you were education secretary. Uh, having observed the previous <laughs> leader's desire to uncouple personal virtues from political philosophy, I just wondered if you had uh, an opinion on the role of personal virtue or Christian virtue in politics. Great question. Um, yeah, I helped some MPs author a pamphlet which you launched on sun Saturday, uh, Sunday of social capitalism. And um, I was just wondering to what extent do you think that those Hamiltonians don't exist because we aren't attracting the right sort of politicians, as, as Freddie mentioned earlier, or they're not being exposed enough to conservative ideas? And if so, how do we combat that? Because every time I talk to conservative MPs about it, they agree with your position, 
he just feels like the IEA, CPS and etc. kind of dominate this whole intellectual space. So. How do you create more of them? And the lady at the back. Good evening. I have um, the privilege of working in a very deprived area of West Birmingham where we have lots of kids who would love more jobs in the NHS but don't have an opportunity to get work experience or apprenticeships because they don't have the resources from their families or from their schools to be able to access those. And the NHS would probably like to give more of those opportunities, but of course each of the anchor institutions don't necessarily um, invest in the resources to offer those in a way that attracts those uh, families that maybe need more resources. We need to kind of close that gap. And if you reconcile those facts with the need for greater uh, volumes of nurses, midwives, allied health professionals in the NHS anchor institutions, and your high recruitment rates overseas, there just seems to be a trick that we're missing there. And I'm really curious to know what you think about that. Well, to take that point first, um, uh, uh, I. I think you make a very, very powerful point. Um, I think it is certainly the case that there are many people uh, who will aspire to work in the NHS and who will face barriers of the kind that you mentioned, including and, and other barriers as well. Um, uh, is it is uh, I'll be training enough doctors and nurses overall and other allied health professionals. Very, very good topic. I don't have the expertise to be able to analyze the problem as crisply as you have done, let alone to be able to come back with a response. But I think you raise a very good question, and I will talk to friends and colleagues about precisely that. Um, Hint of the ministerial answer there. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no but I, I think, and I think there's a particular point you make as well about, you know, within Birmingham, which Sal made earlier about geographical inequality. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's profound in, in, in the city. Um, on, on, oh, yes. Um, uh, the, um, the original idea to uh, send a copy of the King James Bible to every school came from uh, Frank Field. It was uh, ridiculed by uh, uh, lots of people, and some of it was because they thought it was a vanity project on my part, and you know, I'd apparently written a preface and all the rest of it. The thing I found most interesting, though, was that of the things that the Department for Education sent to schools, <laughs> the thing that attracted the most criticism from, I was going to say the Guardian, that's a bit cheap, but you know, you know what I mean, in terms of sending the Bible. If I had said, okay, I'm going to send uh, 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 you know, uh, a copy of Anna Karenina, uh, or I'm going to send a copy of uh, Martin Chuzzlewit to every school. People wouldn't have said, oh, that's absurd and wicked and evil and you know, ridiculous and all the rest of it. It was almost as though, you know, I was saying, um, uh, I, I was sending them a copy of Alistair Crowley's memoirs. You know, it was just... And, and there is an element, and I remember in the, in the conversation that we had about free schools as well, people were always worried about creationist free schools being set up. Um, and what one could sense behind that is that there is a section of opinion in our society that is uh, hostile, uh, uh, it's not just skeptical, hostile towards traditional Christian belief and institutions. That is concerning. When politicians talk about religion in any shape or form, it is very difficult because the natural suspicion is that you're, you're claiming the mandate of heaven for your actions and you're saying, I'm more virtuous than you are, and you risk getting into crucible territory. So that's why you have to be very careful in this space. Um, uh, uh, however, I think that there is a, at the very least, you know, whether or not you have religious faith, there is a stock of wisdom in Judaism, in Christianity, and in Islam, in all of the Abrahamic faiths, a stock of wisdom and moral teaching 
um, which uh, 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 we should all draw on, and we should have a respectful relationship towards. Um, I'm not the best person to lead or engage in this conversation, um, but I do think that um, the allergic reaction of some to invocations of Christian tradition, or for that matter, Jewish tradition, or for that matter, um, uh, lessons from Islam, the allergic reaction that some have tells you more about their power for good than it does about anything else. Um, but that's all I'd say at this stage. And, and, and then to return to it, um, the other great initiative in the last couple of weeks um, beyond um, the expansion in Unheard's readership is something <laughs> called The Conservative Reader that uh, Will Tanner of Onward and Nick Timothy of The Daily Telegraph have, have produced, which is an attempt to send out a weekly newsletter with things that conservatives might want to read um, um, and that reflect the debate on the centre-right. And I think that there is a revival of interest. Yoram Hazoni, the American author with obvious links to um, uh, institutions in Israel and in the UK, uh, has written a new book attempting to draw attention to the writers and thinkers in the conservative uh, tradition. Um, and again, I think it is, uh, you know, it, it's also the case in the United States um, uh, and in Europe that there is a revived interest in small-c conservative thinking. I think that uh, uh, I wouldn't prescribe to every new conservative MP that before they give their maiden speech, they should read Michael Oakeshott, Edmund Burke, um, uh, uh, the er essays of the Marquess of Salisbury before he became a uh, member of Parliament, um, and the uh, uh, and the work of um, uh, Russell Kirk. Um, but if every Conservative MP did do that before they gave their maiden speech, <laughs> then that would be a good thing. Uh, Michael Gove, thank you very much for coming to talk about all of these philosophical undercurrents that maybe exist somewhere beneath all this chaos. And thank you to everyone for coming along. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.